Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? Tuesday. We're getting closer, getting closer to the weekend. One more, what, three more days after today. You don't count today, right? Wednesday, Thursday, yeah. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means we can get to you no matter where you live. You know, we might be an hour or two away from you, but we will definitely get to you. Uh, we also have branches of, of California Haunts or versions of California Haunts in Seattle. In Washington, Oregon, Nevada, and Hawaii. So there you have it. You can find us everywhere. But if you do need something, you do need help with a haunting or what you think is a haunting, check us out on Facebook because we are on Facebook and we are also over on Twitter at, under Cal Haunts. And we are on Instagram under Ghosty Gal. And we are also on uh, TikTok under California Haunts, which is all lowercase. So you can find us. In quite a few places and Twitch because we're broadcasting on Twitch tonight as well. I want to welcome you all. Uh, we got a great show lined up for you. He um, he has he confirmed just a few minutes ago he hasn't entered the room yet, so we can sit here and chat for a little bit. Uh, Jerry Cantor is going to be with us, I hope, <laughs> when it's coming tonight. Um, he's going to be t- talking about natural remedies and things like that. And if not, you know what? We'll just read the book. It's fine. I'm, I'm good with it if you are. But uh, I want I want I want to thank everybody for their support. We've been doing really good and. Uh, we're doing good this month. We're doing well. We'll do it. We're doing well this month as well. And I want to thank everybody for their support. If you're watching from Facebook, please be sure to hit that follow button. If you're watching from YouTube, uh, there's a little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner with the magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat on, and that is our mascot. And that's how you subscribe. You can hit that subscribe button, and we've got more than 450 videos sitting over there. And those videos are of different topics. I'm a journalist. I'm a photojournalist. I like to change it up, just like tonight. We have a, we have a non-ghosty topic. We're going to be talking about health matters. Okay, I like to change things up. And the funny thing of it was, when I was when I was working and not freelancing, I was actually the health reporter for one of the newspapers I worked for. Okay, so I have a little bit of knowledge about health health issues as well, even though I've had my own health issues. Right. So yeah. So um, yeah, we're going to ch- we're, you know we're changing it up tonight just a bit. My um, guest tonight, and this is something that when I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure, I had a great cardiologist and uh, real sweet, real good. And when I told her, it was funny because I was one of these people that was a fast food junkie. I still am a lot sometimes, you know, but I worked as a, as, as a newspaper reporter. You don't get a lot of time to sit down at a table and eat. You're usually on the run because it's kind of like being a firefighter or a police officer. The minute you sit down to have a meal, Boom, the phone rings, and something's happened in town, so you got to take off. So a lot of your food is in the car, you know, McDonald's, right? Because they're, 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 they're bur- they're, their regular burgers don't fall apart, right? So you're driving and you're, you know. So, of course, I ended up with congestive heart failure out of it all, and plus stress, but that, <laughs> the, the, the junkie. And so when I told my cardiologist, uh, I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm not eating more junk. I'm going on your low-sodium diet. That's it. That's it for me. And I, then, then I told her, I said, I'm going to get some books. I'm going to get some books on Native American food. 
you know, and start eating more naturally and all this stuff's going on. And she was really good about it. Sometimes you'll find a doctor who's really cool about it. And she said, well, just show me the book you're using because I just want to make sure it doesn't hurt your heart any further. And you can do it. So that's what I did. I went cold turkey. And then she was laughing because she didn't think I could go cold turkey. And I went cold turkey. You know, and uh, she was real impressed. <laughs> and I did. The next day, that was it. No more junk food. No, no more nothing. You know, and so I believe in natural remedies. I was able on my own with meditation as well because... I started getting into meditation, and I believe, you know, on you know, on your own. But you got to, you know, check with your doctor and stuff. Don't do stuff without checking with your doctor. But I was able, like they have, um, heart patients have what they call the rejection fraction. And when I was diagnosed, I was at like 31 on my ejection fraction, real, real, real low. Within about a year and a half, I had brought it up to 50, which is just about normal. And now I'm sitting at 52 and above, which is normal for a for a normal heart you know it's considered in the normal range and i did that through eating what i was supposed to eat doing natural supplements and meditating to calm myself down to help get keep that stress off so i believe in this stuff and this is why it always excites me to have somebody on like mr cantor okay so let me get him in and uh, he can tell you about himself and we'll go from there hello sir hello charlotte how are you I'm very good. Thank you. I'm so excited about tonight. I love talking to guys like to people like you. Well, it's mutual. <laughs> well, good tell, me about you. tell me about you and how you got into all this. I'm sorry, a little unclear. Say it again. Tell me about you and how you started getting into the natural remedies and all that. Well, um, I'm a homey. I'm sorry. I, I, began, I began as an acupuncturist. I did that for quite a, quite a long time. And then I decided to branch into uh, homeopathy. Um, it enables me to treat children and it enables me to work long distance. And it's just extremely interesting. It's actually more interesting to me than Chinese medicine because it's so psychological. It gets, uh, you know, you, you create, you, you prescribe remedies which are amazingly customized to a person's state. We have hundreds and hundreds of remedies. And so the challenge is always finding out exactly what matches the client. Um, I, my background is in uh, academic philosophy. And um, let's put it this way. Um, I, whereas I like ideas in academic philosophy, the, the big systems just sort of talk past each other. And uh, they don't have that much of a not necessarily is usually kind of a minimal impact or reflection of the world. And that bothered me. So I was drawn to activities and studies that were philosophical but that you could test out. So for example, Aikido or Taiji, which I, I do a lot of, mm -hmm. they have these philosophical ideas that uh, you can call them propositions that uh, if you blend with someone's energy uh, or if you just enough to lead it, then you can throw the person. Well, that's not just a uh, uh, loosey goosey spiritual idea. You actually can do it. You can test it out. Acupuncture, um, traditional Chinese medicine in order to get to your acupuncture point prescription, you have to engage in what I would call a, a dialectical thinking, which is to say, well, you, you argue with yourself on which organ to blame for someone's <laughs> symptoms. And you go back and forth looking at the evidence from the pulse, from the tongue, and finally say, you know, the spleen is deficient, the liver is excessive or something like that. The kidney, the kidney is, uh, kidney is deficient. And then you make a prescription blaming one organ and, um, 
or another, and uh, and then you get to test it out by your acupuncture point prescription. If it if you're right, uh, the per person improves, and you also have proved your philosophical proposition. Right. Ho homeopathy is 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 uh, relates to a, a part of medicine of uh, ac academic philosophy that's called phenomenology, fancy sounding word, but all it means is that um, you get to know somebody and you make a big effort to separate out your biases and your assumptions and sort of see them as a phenomenon in front of you. Um, that's really quite interesting. No one can do it perfectly because it's impossible to eradicate your biases, but what you can do that's second to that would be to look at your own biases, examine your own feelings about this person. You know, I don't like this person. There's something about him. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to saying, oh, the heck with you, say, examine that. What is that about? What is it about that person that's producing that feeling? Or conversely, I really like this person. Maybe that's uh, that means I should be prescribing a carcinosin or something like that. Mm -hmm. We use our own feelings. Um, so in any case, uh, that's also an example of using uh, my philosophical orientation, getting to understand the phenomenon and understanding the rules that 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 uh, control that person. So when I when I make a homeopathic prescription, uh, I'm also asking myself how why this person's symptoms indicate a, a robotic aspect to them. There's something that they're doing automatically that they're stuck in. In homeopathy land, we call that the delusion. Mm -hmm. So also kind of a tough word. But uh, my job is to figure out that delusion and um, what the rules of it are and find the, me the, the remedy, which is a dilute version of, could be a botanical or a venom of a snake or a mineral compound, that if it was given in a gross amount, would produce in healthy people that same delusion and the symptoms accompanying it. So you can see that's, a, that's an exciting thing to do. I, I go to work every day. Every day I learn something new. And um, it really involves me in, in nature and uh, the phenomenon of, of what it is like to be alive. It's a kind of a long answer to your question. But I, yeah, no, but that's, that's absolutely fascinating to me. It's intriguing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. what you do. I mean, and plus it's a, it's a nice alternative for people who maybe, you know, don't want to, and I hate to say it, say I don't want to say it lightly, but maybe don't 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 want to have all those chemicals put in their body, and you're able to to help them with that. Right. So that's the thing about homeopathy, and um, should say something about it. Um, it, it. People are very confused about homeopathy because a couple of things. The word starts with H, and there's two other words that start with H, which these days bamboozle everybody: Hol holistic and herbs. Right. Well, homeopathic remedies can be made from anything. Botanicals, certainly herbs, for sure, but not. But many of them are made for something else. Uh, holistic. Well, yeah, homeopathy is is uh, completely holistic because the, the remedies are so incredibly dilute; they're just energetic. There's no possibility of putting something uh, harmful in your body. Um, but there are a lot of things that are holistic that are not homeopathic. The other big mistake people make, and this has been um, this 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 mistake has been, uh, I would say, inculcated in the population, um, deliberate a deliberate uh, campaign of uh, mischaracterization by the pharmaceutical industry and other other uh, mischievous mischief makers um, is that it, it's syn synonymous with anything gentle. No, <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> it means one thing and one thing only, and that's the law of similars, using like to cure like, this matching deal that I was talking about before. So when you go to a homeopath who's on his or her game, you're going to have this very extensive very interesting interview where someone like me will start asking weird questions so what the heck is that about or 
or ask you about things that have you think have nothing to do with your problem. But in fact, the context uh, in which we live, uh, things I, I ask questions like, how are you famous in your family? What stories are told about you when you were a child? Um, what's your hot button? What's the situation you least like to be in? And when your hot button is pushed, what do you do? Do you get irritable? Do you withdraw? Do you get drunk? Do you write a poem? Do you slam a door? Um, I'll ask questions like that. I might ask a question like, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? I have to get to know you really very, very well. And that's the job of, of homeopaths. And in that first interview, which is usually an hour and a half long, we get to a place where when you leave that practitioner's office, you say, you know, I met that guy just for 90 minutes. He knows me better than anybody I've ever met. And that gives us our baseline understanding of you. And uh, from that point on, the prescribing gets easier once we get a handle on you. Well, it's like anything else where stress, you know, stress can play a, a huge role into how your health goes. And stress. is that the kind of thing you're looking for is to see what, what, what might be even minor triggers that, that might be causing it, right? Right, exactly. But the word stress, we have to pull that apart and up and down and sideways. How we are stressed varies tremendously from individual to individual, which, is, uh, which speaks to my hot button question. When your button is pushed, that means you're being stressed. But there's many ways people get stressed. Uh, when I ask that question, what's your hot button? You wouldn't believe the answers I get. Uh, or if I ask, what's the worst thing about whatever you pay? Let's say you come in with, like you would you know, maybe talk about fibromyalgia, which is also a word I have to deconstruct. And I'll ask a dumb question. Sound like a dumb question. What's the worst thing about that pain in your shoulders you get? And you would think the person's going to say, you idiot, it hurts. What are you asking me that for? But that's not what people say. They say, I can't go to visit my mother, or I, I, I just can't play uh, racquetball, or uh, it keeps me awake at night, and, and uh, you know I have these terrible dreams, or um, when, when I, I get incredibly irritable, and then <laughs> give any number of answers. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we get, it just gets very specific. So the word stress is one that's a good opening word, but we have to pull it apart and see, well, what, is, what does this person mean by that? Because everybody means something different. And stress also causes different stuff. I mean, people, some people get headaches, some people get upset stomachs. Sometimes if, if you have a pain issue going on, it'll increase the pain or it'll bring pain up even in different parts of the body, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, what I was hoping to talk about today, and I'm sure we'll get sure. to it, is... Uh, I don't know how you want, if you want to do your own introduction to it, but this book, Sane Asylums, that I wrote, which is the history of homeopathic mental hospitals, which has been uh, suppressed. Oh, there we go. Thank you very much. I got you. Um, the point I'm making with this when I talk about this now, to so that people can relate to it, it's not just past history. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm getting almost getting tired of people telling me, you know, homeopathy saved my life. It got my, once I got off those damn, Neuroleptics, those uh, benzodiazepines, everything got better. That was poisoning me. Or uh, mm -hmm. antipsychotics killed my mother. And homeopathy, uh, you know, I'll, I'll never deviate from that. That's fantastic. I hear these things, and you know, I mean, I'm a, I've been doing homeopathy for 25, 30 years, and I'm getting tired of that. And I'm wondering why something so obvious eludes the mass population. Mm -hmm. I mean, homeopathy is, doesn't have side effects, although we have processing effects. Um, they're so dilute, they cannot poison you. Um, they don't create artificial conditions that think things that never existed, like tardive dyskinesia um, or the five different types of bipolar disease. You know, the United States has horrend a horrendous record of, of mental illness. 
uh, compared to developing countries where they don't haven't been exposed to our uh, psychopharmacological regimes. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, as opposed to telling, you know, sympathizing, yeah, you're right, let's fight for this. Um, I think we have to get at the reason for this. And one of the reasons is the suppression of history, actually hijacking of history. And uh, this book, I, I, I hate to say it, I, it should not have been written by me. It should have been written by a team of professional historians. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's absolutely crazy that I, I did this digging and found this incredible trove of information that has been literally whitewashed from the websites of homeopathic hospitals, the websites of, 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 of hospitals that were formerly homeopathic, medical schools that were formerly home, uh, homeopathic. I mean, these, it has an amazing history and uh, it just was an astounding, astounding thing, rabbit hole to go down. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, I mean, there's, there's a statistic, there were a hundred homeopathic uh, uh, hospitals in this country. There actually were many more because a lot of places that practiced it or had a famous homeopath on staff didn't bother to say that. It wasn't, wasn't so important at that time. They had their name and the, they, they, they chose who they wanted. Um, I have this uh, piece of news in here. It's a 150-year-old journalistic coup about the widow of Abraham Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln. This story has not been told, but it's, you know, if you do a little digging like I did, I mean, you will find it. But you have to have an interest in homeopathy uh, to do this. She was cured by homeopathy, I'm absolutely certain, within four months. And the existing story about her, there are two stories about her. Each of them are preposterous, absolutely preposterous. You know, her son uh, was really worried about Mary Todd Lincoln. She had, she was spending ridiculous amounts of money. She thought their electricity was coming out of her eyes. She thought the whole city was on fire. She, she was completely out of her mind. And she had, there's plenty of good reason for it. If you look at her history, she fell out of a carriage, had a brain injury. She lost two children. She was trolled by a vicious journalist who made a big deal that uh, Lincoln never loved her, that uh, Lincoln, she was her Lincoln's second choice. She was a pariah in Washington because her family uh, came from the South and had slaves. She had a very rough time of it. And uh, then of course her husband's murdered right next to her. Um, it, it's a little bit much to take. And so she did go out of her mind. It was a huge trial. It was absolutely sensational. 14 doctors testified and many of them were homeopaths in fact. And they said she's incurably insane. And they sent her to this particular physician in, in Illinois, had a, a little asylum called the uh, Batavia Asylum. And I call that a sane asylum because something very special happened over there. Um, and within three months, three and a half months, she's sitting on the front stoop writing letters, talking to the doctor's child, uh, being, being completely normal. And then a couple of months later, uh, a couple of lawyers got involved and they, 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 she's suddenly she's out and she's acting perfectly normal. And the story is there's two stories. Well, one says she was never crazy in the first place. Mm -hmm. Duh. Look at the evidence of that, uh, of that trial. You, you wouldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't possibly think that if, and it, the jury certainly didn't think so. She said, they said she was incurably nuts. Mm -hmm. And the other version is that, well, uh, yeah, she was crazy, but you know, she just needed some rest and uh, some get away from it all. And uh, these lawyers, uh, you know, kind of fix things along. Both those stories, as far as I'm concerned, are ridiculous. So all I did was researched this, this her physician, Richard Patterson. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I found out there, you, you can read in the chapter, but um, <laughs> I, I've not seen this told anywhere. And back to my other point, 
let's imagine that that story was out, that came out, that she was cured by homeopathy, and it was told, and it was in children's books, and everybody knew that homeopathy could do this. What would have been the effect in 1910 when the Flexner report came out and eviscerated all the medical schools, you know, including the homeopathy schools? I think that made a, bit, made a difference. If, if homeopathy had been entrenched in people's consciousness, that, that would have been resisted. They, that that uh, People might have rose up and said, what the hell are you doing to our medical schools? So there are lots of examples like that. But uh, that's a, a pretty spectacular one. And again, I don't see the only reason that professional historians didn't go into that territory was because homeopathy uh, is supposed to be an embarrassment. It's supposed to be passe. It's inconvenient. It's exist very existence is inconvenient to the profiteering of pharmaceuticals. Yes. And uh, the, the campaign that was waged after the Flexner report on behalf of uh, John D. Rockefeller's uh, oil by byproduct medicines. I don't want to get too much into a rant, but that is my point. I, 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 I can tell many stories, give cases about how fantastic homeopathy is. But right now, the, um, the platform that I'm standing on is that when we lose our history, if we have our history hijacked, mm -hmm. we lose choice. We lose freedom of choice. So when people come up to me and say, I never heard of this before. I, 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 you know, they want to get me into a big diatribe with their doctor. I'm not interested in that so much as attacking right. this problem at its root cause. We need to have representation in ac academia of this position. We have to have historians teaching this. And having been deprived of it is really very, you know, very unfortunate. Well, you know, I agree with you 100%. I mean, uh, case in point right now is the thing that's going on with Kratom. You know, where a lot of the states are outlawing Kratom for the pain patients. You know, the, the people, you know, and, and it works for them. And that's because the big pharmaceuticals don't want it. I couldn't catch that word. What is the word you used? Kratom. I don't know what that is. What is Kratom? It's, 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 I think, I think it's, I'm not that positive what it is. I know it's like, a, it's like a powder that, that they mix with water. Yeah. And yeah. I think it might be for, even from India. Somebody will probably yell at me. Oh, I see, I see. But it's for pain. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not an opioid. It's nothing like an opioid at all. And that's the thing is the, is a lot of the states are outlawing it because of big pharmaceutical. Well, sure. Look at what happened, how long the, uh, the, CB, the CBD oil was, uh, was held off. Uh, there's mm -hmm. endless, endless examples of that. And yeah, we can talk about them forever. And, you know, my humble task is, is just to try at the moment, try to repair the history around homeopathy. But right. yeah, right. is there endless examples of it? Um, I, one, one ridiculously simple example is um, uh, saw palmetto, which is an herb, which all through Europe is, is known as the most effective uh, substance for any kind of prostatitis. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's been documented endlessly, but it will not be prescribed in this country. Just yep. won't. Because why? The pharmaceutical companies have drugs that they've invested a lot of money in to push them through, push through the FDA. They have to regain their profits and they will not let doctors prescribe it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not the first person, believe me, to say this. And many, many people know this, that medicine is about profit and, and not about care. Mm -hmm. And it can be attacked from many, many angles. Um, the one I'm I'm pushing right now is 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 homeopathy because it's it's well established. It's it's uh -huh. it's uh, 300 million people around the world rely on it, but in this country, uh, the kibosh on it, <laughs> the attempt, you know, the idea of minimum marginalizing it has been extremely successful. As a matter of fact, my book, Sane Asylums, I originally pitched it to a a, a big overseas publisher by, by called Springer. Right. There may be three big publishers in the world that publish both academic. Um, books about homeopathy from an academic and medical standpoint. 
Springer, Elsevier, and Team. And they used to do this. And now the campaign in, in Europe was so effective that they all wet their pants and said, no, we're scared. We're not going to do this anymore. So they came up with a completely ridiculous answer to me when I pr pr promoted this, when I pitched this book to them. They said, well, the mental hospitals from that time, they're all like, they, they, they all practice moral care. Mm -hmm. And boy, that's like comparing a death march to a military march, saying, well, they're both, they're both about being outdoors and having, getting good exercise. Um, there are enormous differences, even apart from the fact that the homeopathic ones use homeopathy and mm -hmm. the other ones did not. Um, there was a Middletown hospital that I talk about here quite a bit as the mother church of this movement. You know, it was a wonderful, self-sufficient, utopian place. 47 buildings, 2,000 patients they, they got up to. Um, if, you, if you were really violent and, and you know, they, they might put you in a camisole as a very last resort. Well, 120 miles away in Utica, another so-called moral care hospital, and yeah, they had activities and they had some gardening and cultural things. And if you wanted to, you could write for the newsletter that they prided themselves on. But over there, if you acted out, Amariah Brigham, the superintendent of that place, would put you in something called the, the Utica crib. And um, that's a torture device that Edgar Allan Poe might have made up. It's this little tiny, it's, <laughs> it's a coffin basically made with, of slats. And you couldn't move at all. You just lay there and and went crazy, absolutely crazy. And they used it to punish the, 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 the mentally ill people, to uh, break their spirits. Um, and the expression to become unhinged, something I, I have a strong suspicion, came from that particular device. So that when they unhinged the top, you were twice as crazy as you were when you went in. And, it, and it, you could not recover from that. So there's a big difference between the moral care places. And that's just another example of uh, how when you denied information, you lose choice. If you were a family back in 18, 1870s mm -hmm. and someone in your family had a nervous breakdown and you had to choose between the Utica Asylum and the Middletown Asylum, you better believe it would have made a difference to you to know, to know what, what those uh, what methodologies were in those two, two different systems. You would have picked that, Middleton. That's incredible, absolutely incredible. But you do hear horror stories. You know, a lot of the stuff you hear about is the horror stories from, from those asylums you know back back in those old days so tell me this um you, you wrote this book and how long did it take you to get through the research for it i mean this had to be incredible research you know um my joke is that uh, this is how i spent my covid vacation um i don't know how i did it honestly god i mean i had a full-time practice while i did it um i mean I'm, I'm a homeopath so i knew some of this stuff basically but i just started sending away from the old books for the textbooks from the late late 1800s and the early 1900s one after another, and uh, I'm very grateful to the University of Michigan for its digitalization process. Uh, Google, Google, Google Books um, made things available to me. Uh, it, it somehow fell into place. I worked like a madman. I stopped paying. I just ignored my wife. It was un unfortunate. Uh, we're still married, by the way. But uh, no, I mean, I, I had to I had to steal the time to do it. Um, it was just so compelling. It just seemed so important. You know, you. Uh, I, I, I feel like uh, I had the ideas, but maybe it's more like the ideas had me. It, this was a story that had to be told, and maybe I was channeling uh, the 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 desires of some of these old old uh, homeopathic physicians. It's dedicated to Selden Talcott, who was the superintendent of the Middletown um, Mental Hospital that I, I venerate. Um, but it just fell into place, and everything. The information started pouring towards me, and I couldn't. I couldn't resisted and basically i just felt i shaped it 
when you talked about Mary Lincoln's case, are there other cases like hers that where somebody made a, a tremendous turnaround like that without having to be heavily drugged? Well, that's the most famous one. That's the easiest one to talk about. I'll tell you, um, like at the Easton Asylum in, in, in uh, Pennsylvania, it was, at that time, it was incredibly well-known and very famous people went there. Actually, there's many pe famous people who used homeopathy, but it was like, you know, today, if, if a celebrity disappears and they say he's suffering from exhaustion right. and uh, shows up much later, he's had, he or she has had a mental breakdown of some sort or a drug problem, and they don't tell you where they went. You know, it's kind of embarrassing. Then they come back on the, you know, make their movie. That's what happened back then. People would, many, many people would go to places like that. The homeopaths were all famous. And they protected your privacy. They they weren't going to you know broadcast what they did. Mm -hmm. um, it took me. I, I was able to pull out. Uh, you know, well, this a lot of a lot of the book, a fair amount of the book is is uh, really suited to homeopaths. But all the most of the story is not. But if you're a homeopath and you want to find out how people practice, then you know what the what the prescriptions were. I I did do a certain amount of digging around that. I I do know the books that were used, and I could speculate about how uh, Mary Todd Lincoln was treated, because again, her pr practitioner. You know, he was savvy. He didn't talk about what he, what he did. It was known that he used homeopathics, but he was he would he was a uh, he was a savvy a savvy operator operator, and he, he didn't want to run afoul of the conventional physicians. He was officially part of that group. Um, so anyway, um, madness was also very different in that time. So if you want a war story about what was what was great, it would, it would, you might not relate to the terms that were used. Um, but there are statistics, you know, people suffered at that time from drunkenness, uh, from late stage syphilis, from many kinds of dementia. Uh, the, the term the madness had different, different names. As a matter of fact, what I did in my book to deal with that was at the end, I put, created an appendix called Compendium of uh, Madness Perspectives. And that's a, a complete deviation from MS, uh, M, the, um, the, you know, the MS, MSD, what is it, MSD? <laughs> what do they call that book? Uh, yeah, the DSM-5, I'm sorry, the DSM-5, because it's not about labeling these things, but putting a, every, all, every kind of behavior into a context whether, and, and showing that some be, in some one culture it would be a perfectly normal way to be. Another one, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be thrown into a, a torture pit. And so that, so that people have, don't, do not have a knee-jerk reaction to this. Mm -hmm. Thomas Zaz, the psychiatrist uh, from the 19, 1960s, uh, was a paradigm for me. Um, Having, having, you know, laid the groundwork for this. And he had a lot of credibility because he was a psychiatrist. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, what madness, madness was, well, it was very different. And, yeah, people, uh, some of the homeopaths at the, the asylums, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of what I would call keynote prescribing. Because mm -hmm. when you had 150 patients there, you couldn't do exactly what I do now, which spend an hour, hour and a half with somebody. You'd go around the wards and, um, you know, take, you know, get a quick hit on somebody and prescribe. And they also had lots of other fantastic things going. These were wonderful places. The nurses were brilliant um, and uh, they were patient. Nobody was kicked into the community right away. It was an right. asylum. People could stay there for a long time. And uh, it wasn't so important as, as, as important as it is now for, for me to make this case about homeopathy. Back then, yeah, everybody knew homeopathy worked. They didn't have to go on a, on a big platform and, and do it. It was just the, the competition between the homeopaths and the doctors was economic. They, they knew it worked. As a matter of fact, the homeopaths at that time were wealthy. Nobody wanted to go to the conventional doctors. Um, the homeopaths were eating the doctor's lunch, which is why the AMA was formed. Um, but anyway, uh, 
people people wanted to get people well and 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 make a living, and uh, they didn't broadcast the news. People knew. People, I mean, even today, I, mean, I don't I don't advertise at all as a homeopath. And well, how come I'm busy? You know, right. and people are paying out of their own pocket, and insurance is not covering it. And um, if you want a war story, you've got to talk to my clients because I really I I, I have to get someone's permission to talk about about the cases. Oh no, that's fine. But um, um, I think it's a case too where people. There's no trust. There's no trust with big pharmaceutical anymore because people are aware of what they're doing now, so they want to go back to a more natural thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I, I think it's going to be a, a growing trend. Just like when I was listening to you talk about the asylums and stuff, it, it brought to mind these new style dementia centers that they have now, the ones where where, where they build the whole village for them, and they get to live in the on their own in houses, and they have little malls they can shop in, but it, it's all enclosed in a in a facility. Wow, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, in in Belgium, there's a town called Giel, G A G E L, and uh, where they have this uh, marvelous model that had a big influence on the superintendents in in, in the in Selden Talcott's day, uh, called foster care. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and the backstory of how, how that all happened at Giel is very interesting, but. Um, yeah, uh, the mad, the the mad, the uh, people mentally disturbed go there, and they're 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 evaluated by the town, and they're just sort of farmed out among families. And uh, the place is full of people who are eccentric, what well, you know, who are function well, minimally functional, but they're tolerated, and they're they're not they're not treated. They're just mm -hmm. uh, well, except that they're treated with respect. Right. Um, it's not a facility; it's the entire town of Deal. Neat. Yeah. And by the yeah. way, back to the point about pharmaceuticals, yes. I I, yes. I like to make another educational sure, point. Sure, sure. Homeopathic remedies are described in a book called Materia Medica. And I want to make the point that these are very, very honest books, mm -hmm. especially if we compare them with the two other books, the Physician's Desk Reference, which is the dishonest book because it talks about the drugs and then mm -hmm. is embarrassed or, or is, you know, about the side effects. Mm -hmm. They're inconvenient. They're side effects. They're not side effects. They're the pr primary action of those, of those pharmaceuticals. And on the other side, is a book of toxicology, which talks about substances exclusively in terms of their harmful effects. A homeopathic materia medica looks at a, at a, at a substance as, again, it can be an herb or a botanical or a chemical compound. And, you know, these things have been tested on healthy people. So we know the good things it does as well as the bad things. And all those things get written into the, get, get appear in the materia medica. So we're going to prescribe something. It might be based on something very, very trivial. A ridiculous example I make up is if people sneeze when they see a piano. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think there is a remedy like that. But if there was, and, and like a lot of people reported they have that symptom, that would get into the Materia Medica and maybe cue you know, a, a remedy that could treat multiple sclerosis for all I know. In any right. case, the Materia Medica is very honest. When you read, read the descriptions, there's things in there which are you know, clearly things you don't want to have and other things that are very, very desirable, like cheerfulness or... Or a buoyant mind, or <laughs> tremendous energy, or superhuman yeah. strength—you will see those in the Materia Medica, along with the the other symptoms. And so we have this phenomenological idea—you know, looking at someone as a phenomenon, trying to figure out what they're like in their totality. So the, the the gold standard is prescribing on the totality of symptoms, never on the basis of one symptom. Mm -hmm. If you do that, you have to assume that someone's like a car, and that they are the sum of all these separate little things. That's reductionist science. I often tell my clients when they want to know what have you got for a, for a uh, earache or what have you got for a migraine. I said you're not. I say you're not a car. If you were a car, I'd take you apart. I'd take your ear off and I, you know, fix it. I you know, look at your head and uh, find something, you know, find something off the shelf. That's not what's going on. 
I have to figure out why you have those symptoms. What you know, I have to interpret them, and I can only do that when I really know the narrative of your life and and some of these things like you know what what sort of effect, things affect you and what have what things have affected you in your life. Now the stuff uh, you you get to treat people with, where, where did you get the information for it? Was that like passed down from like like years and years ago that that there been records kept? Or is there a school you go to, or how, how do you know how to do this? Oh, Charlotte, what do you mean? Like the what, when I my treating my treating methods now, or the or the Sand Asylums book, the information in that. The treating methods you use now. Oh, oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the entire history of homeopathy. We uh, how how uh, how how medicine remedies get get uh, researched. Many of them come from existing drugs that were you know used. And then uh, the diluted versions of those become homeopathic uh, remedies. I'll tell you something. Here's something that's of note. You know the word quack? I bet you don't know where the word quack comes from. Maybe you do. Um. Well, I won't quiz you. I'll tell you. I'll, the big reveal. So the, the other word, word for, uh, for mercury uh, as a substance and a, and a medicine is quicksilver. Okay. And Qu Quicksilver was the, the god of communication, which actually plays into, uh, into this some ways because people who need the remedy made from uh, mercury are often very, very, always very good communicators. But in any case, mercury was used extensively to treat syphilis in the 19th century. And then, as in now, doctors would fall in love with some substance and use it not only for what we, it was supposed to be used for, but they used it off indication. They would use it for all kinds of stuff. Um, seizure medications today are used you know, for, for depression and, you know, and uh, schizophrenia and so forth. Anyway, so mercury was used off, 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 um, off indication for all kinds of stuff. And mercury is a terrible neurotoxin. The expression to be mad as a hatter comes from, from mercury. Uh, erethism, another technical term, is, is a kind of mercury poisoning. And people got terrified of the doctors. Oh, my God, you going to that, uh, that, that quicker. Uh, then it was a quick and then a quack. And the doctors were the ones who were called quacks, not the homeopaths. The homeopaths said, oh, my God, another one of these. We have to take, we've got to make, clean up this mess. So they make the remedy, the homeopathic version of it, diluting it from the mercury. And that's what we have to prescribe a lot of the time. So it's a supreme irony and, and really quite unfair that uh, on, on the, the, the blogs and the Internet, homeopaths are called quacks. It's quite the opposite. Okay. The reason why I asked you is because my grandmother from Mexico was an herbalist and she, 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 and she was a healer essentially because she would, you know, use her herbs to help people who were sick and stuff. That's why I was curious to see where the stuff, you know, that, that, that you work with comes from. It comes from everywhere, Charlotte. And uh, yeah, herbs in uh, Native American medicines, we, mm -hmm. we are absolutely shameless. We don't have, we have, we don't care where it comes from so long as we get to know what it does. And uh, a lot of them have this, these things have incredible histories. Um, each one of them actually has a very fascinating history. But I'll tell you this one. Um, the elements of the periodic table uh, are all homeopathic remedies. And, you know, they all have interesting names. Uh, and the names, the naming of the elements, is almost as if they were named by homeopaths because these, the mythical story of the Greek hero that, you know, that a, a, an element of the periodic table names named, named for, that particular hero's key issue is what is pertinent when we prescribe that particular that particular remedy. It's just amazing. Naming is very powerful. Um, I'll give you one example of that uh, when you know how a remedy comes from. This is there's no such thing as a typical example because they're all different. Mm -hmm. But um, 
Actually, this is a fantastic story. Maybe I'll, I'll tell you this story about polonium. By the way, how much time do we have? Are we okay? Oh, we got another 30 minutes. We're good. Okay. So polonium is an element on the periodic table. And um, Marie Curie uh, uh, was researching radium, and she, she discovered it. What is this stuff? She didn't really know what it, what it was. But she was homesick at that moment. She was lived in France, and she was Polish. And she said, oh, I'm so homesick. I'm going to call it, name it after Poland. So she named it polonium after Poland. Now, note that there's an element of nostalgia in that, right? A desire to hold on to the past. Well, as it turns out, I don't think Marie Curie knew this, that polonium would be very, very valuable in the preservation of things like films, things that, that you know, can capture the past. Um, when I think about polonium, I think of the movie Sunset Boulevard which is uh, about that actress trying to hold on to her old past career. But listen to this. Do you remember a couple of years ago when the, the Soviets assassinated uh, this, this man in, in England? Yes. I forget his name. Remember, they used, they used polonium, right? Yeah. They used polonium. I think that's extremely interesting because that was not a coincidence. They could have used something else. Polonium is expensive. It's hard to get. Why did they use polonium? I'll tell you why they used polonium. Here's the homeopathic reason. They may not even have been aware of this, but the people who did that were the people that this dip diplomat was criticizing. They were the old guard of the KGB. And when they were po he was poisoned with polonium, that was their way of saying, hey, you think we're dinosaurs. You think the past is past. Guess what? It's pretty immediate. How do you feel now? That's why they use polonium. So all these things, it's how they relate to the origin of, of that, of that homeopathic remedy, Marie Curie discovering this thing she didn't really recognize or care about, feeling nostalgic at that exact moment. What a synchronicity, huh? And that's why she named it polonium. And that's the subconscious reason why that man was, was punished, was, uh, was poisoned by that substance. So uh, getting back to uh, the, 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 uh, the sanatoriums, um, in your research, how much uh, of that stuff did they use? You know, the, the natural stuff did they use in those places? Do we use today? Yeah, or we used back then too. Well, I mean, homeopathy was at its, at its zenith in 1875. The same yeah. remedies that we're using today, uh, we, 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 many of them were used today. We used then. We have we're constantly adding to the uh, materia medica. For example, polonium did not exist then. Right. But uh, arsenic and belladonna and calcarea carbonica. I mean, and noxvomica. They all were used and understood the same way than as they are now. That has not changed very much. Mm -hmm. um, so they, and they each have these very specific kinds of personality features. Like, you know, learning homeopathy is like getting to know a whole bunch of people intimately, like friends. Mm -hmm. The Nux Vomica person is somebody who's an, a multitasker, an irritable person. He's a control freak, you know, can't, you know, can't wait, um, feels he's constantly at war with the world. And uh, yet he says, all I want is a little peace. You might, you've met people like that. I can tell you the, 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 the personality of, of these remedies because they're intimate friends. I, I work with them every single day. Um, and they weren't so different back then um, as, as now. But as I said, people had different conditions. In America, drunkenness was an incredible problem. So there are books written about how to treat chronic drunkenness, was called, which is called inebriation. Um, same, but we would use the same ones, many of the same ones today, plus new ones that we need now. Our diseases are different. We have uh, an epidemic of autoimmune diseases now. We have uh, an epidemic of autism. We have uh, conditions that are related to uh, uh, 
EMF, you know, all the radiations that we're exposed to. Homeopathy has to evolve, and, and it does, which is it, it continues to be to work because it's uh, it's 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 relevant. The law of similars is a basic law of nature, and uh, we'll never lose it any more than we'll lose the acupuncture meridians. Uh, you can't you can't tell people that they're phony when everybody knows that uh, they have energy. Do you think that uh, the regular medical folks are ever going to like accept it more? You think there's going to be more more acceptance, or you think it's just going to be a back and forth? Uh, it's a funny thing. You know, back in the day, with my day, I'm just my head is in that time. The homeopaths, many of them, uh, I'm not sure what percentage, they were physicians who converted to homeopathy. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing against it, but it's it's a tough tough sell because you make so much money with conventional medicine, and also starting out, you're so far in debt. Uh, you've got to make it make it up, and mm-hmm. the, the pressures on physicians. I feel bad for them. It's horrible. They've give, they've got to work and you know give these five minute treatments based completely on protocol. Everybody complains about it, um, but for sure it's still happening. Uh, I, quite a few physicians have converted to homeopathy that I know of. Uh, some of my patients, you know, I mean, it does happen, but it, 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 it it's it's a temptation more easily given into when you're later in your career and you 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 save some money. And uh, you really want to do what you really love to do. The profession as a whole, um, I, I'm not campaigning to, <laughs> to change that. It's right. got to, it's got to, it's got to change on its own. Um, but the thing is, the important things always happen kind of in the background, you know, sort of under the radar. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of something. My generation created acupuncture. When I started out in the 1970s, we were called all kinds of names: voodoo doctors, you know medicine men, and we were made fun of in every, every magazine, every newspaper. We had to practice needling secretly after dark because it was illegal to put a needle into somebody. Um, there was no licensure. We had to convince doctors to cover us in case of there's any kind of problem if we didn't want to be completely underground. And now, you know, 40, 50 years later, every state licenses acupuncture. People come out of uh, Ivy League schools to become acupuncturists. I look around, I say, how, how this is unbelievable that this has happened. How did it happen? It did not happen because the medical establishment said, oh, you were right all along. This is great. Yeah, uh, keep, keep doing this. No, it's been resisted. It's never been fully covered. It's hardly ever covered at all by, by, by insurance, which is kind of the, the uh, big litmus test of what's legitimate in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, ha- it, was, it, it, it proliferated because people you know, voted with their feet. They loved it. They know, knew it worked. Um, so the law of similars is also a law of nature. And by the way, 1938 and before, the FDA recognized not homeopathy, but the law of similars. So here's something that I, I wonder if your audience knows this. If you say, which, is, which of these substances has the most um, official credibility? Um, nutritional supplements, herbs, vitamins, or homeopathic remedies? They might be surprised to know that of all those, the only one that is officially a drug is a homeopathic remedy. You don't have to put them through the FDA's, uh, you know, rigorous program. And, you know, you, you, they're trying to make it seem like you do have to, you know, mm-hmm. one by one, one by one. But that's not the case. Back then, um, you know, 80 years ago, the FDA recognized that the law of similars was a law of nature. If you can prove what a substance did to healthy people, as I say, mm-hmm. what was goes into the Materia Medica, it automatically meant, it automatically meant you can use the dilute version of that to treat a sick person. And the whole class of remedies was, was grandfathered in as, as drugs. So they're funny kind of drugs because it, they, they really are only drugs constitutionally 
when they match the person. When they don't match, then they're not drugs. And other drugs are not like that. Wow. Um, I was just going to ask you a question. Oh, yes. Did you notice a, a, an uptick in, in, in your patients during COVID? Yes, but also my existing patients were sicker. Mm-hmm. Um, I did very well with it. I, no one died under my, under my, uh, under my care. Um, as a matter of fact, and the other thing, interesting thing about the COVID was it didn't really change things that much. The word is there, of course. I know something's going on. There's definitely an epi- epidemic. But when mm-hmm. I would work with my clients individually, lo and behold, they still needed remedies specific to them and not much more than specific to COVID. And the whole community has been trying very hard all through this to find what's called the uh, epidemicus generalicus, like the single remedy that would cover all of COVID. This right. is a very, very weird epidemic. There's so much variation, uh, and that feeds the uh, speculation that it was is not a normal type of, of a disease. Um, so uh, that's the bad news about it. But the good news is that it, it didn't change my prescribing. People would come in there and say, oh, I think I've got COVID. What have you got for COVID? And I go through my usual thing, and I find a very specific remedy. It would work. And uh, it would work whether they w- actually tested positive or not. <laughs> it was still, it was still uh, the prescription that was determined was the diagnostic criteria, not not the not the, the word COVID. Um, so it, it, people were sick; they had to go through it. And I still maintain, you know, you have it's it's better to get your own immunity uh, than do other sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know. Other epidemics, and I talk about that in, in this book too, the Spanish flu epidemic, cholera epidemics, homeopathy's history has been squelched. It was did very, very well in those times. But that's an inconvenient truth, especially when you want to make a lot of money from people, uh, you know, of the fear of, of a pandemic. Well, the thing with homeopathy too is that the history of it itself goes so far back that, I mean, I don't see how the, 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 the medical community can just wash it away. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, it goes back for years and years and years. It was happening back in pioneer times and all this. So, I mean, I don't see how they can do that. Uh, right. And there wasn't really an intention to wash it away back in the 1800s because, uh, for one thing, um, you know, the, all the, none of the medicines were patented at that time. Uh, everybody was using the same stuff, and everybody wanted some degree of control about how much, what kind of dilutions they were used. Um, there was a lot of overlap between the two, the two forms of medicine. Um, there was, in fact, a book that I referenced in my insane asylums called the, uh, by David Dice Brown, The Permeation of Modern-Day Medicine by Homeopathy, saying, hey, look, you know, cut, let the crap here. We're all doing the same thing. You're just pretending that you're inventing this all over again. Hahnemann has done this, uh, you know, for 100 years already. Um, there it, it, it was not any, it, you know, it, it was not as, as, as a, a big a gap between the two things then, and, and people weren't trying to make that point so much. Everybody's trying to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Like what I was saying earlier on, um, even the conventional doctors were, were, might have been practicing a form of homeopathy from time to time. They just didn't call it that. Right. Right. Now, when you look at the, the research you did on the, on, on the asylums, were you able to get a, a kind of comparison on the success rate of somebody that was being treated with homeopathy as opposed to regular medicine? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, I do tackle that in the book. Um, the measures were different at that time. Uh, the, the asylums uh, com- did their own comparisons based on death rates, and they did very well. But that doesn't even touch on the, the differences in the quality of life and many other things. Um, and I, I have a couple of comparisons in there, you know, not just with the Utica uh, 
um, facility, but also in, in Hudson River, there was a, a, a another uh, moral care moral care moral care asylum. It's exactly the same size as the Middletown homeopathic one. Um, it was opened one year earlier. Also had all kinds of cultural activities, but it was unbelievably corrupt. Um, it lost one point two million dollars uh, through embezzlement or or or, or um, misspending, and the New York Times excoriated it. Um, they also had a baseball team like the Middletown team. And I'm glad to say the Middletown team beat them. <laughs> um, yeah, but it was not, uh, how can I say it? Yeah, the, the standard for, for, for comparisons were, were, uh, were not there at the time. And it was not that, 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 not, not that competitive along those lines as it is today. We are homeopaths. We're trying to make this point. I mean, the stakes are so high because the pharmaceuticals are so harmful. Back then... Um, it was it was a different time, and and people were able to, people had enough information that they could choose for themselves. Let's put it that way, and they did. They did. What, what I find fri so frightening right now is the pharmaceuticals. Like you say, they're not safe. They're not as safe as people think they are. There's a lot of side effects with these things, and they keep and because, like you say, there's so much money involved with it. They keep pushing it on people and pushing it on people when there's when there's people like you that, that folks can go to and it's a lot safer. Yeah, I wish I had $10 billion. I'd create a very interesting advertising campaign for, for homeopathy on TV to compete mm -hmm. with the ridiculous ads that are there. But, I mean, people can, should read. The person people should read is Robert Whitaker, uh, who wrote a, so a, couple, a famous journalist who wrote uh, Madden America and Anatomy of an Epidemic. And you'll see what he does. Um, this is not. This is not uh, a rant. This is not uh, uh, you know, the way Thomas Daz argued right. based on ideology. He uses all the statistics from the uh, and all the studies of the pharmaceutical industry itself, and they it, it, they just it, it just proves it doesn't work. It causes at least as much harm as it does good, and and it, it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's a bad path to go down. And uh, Whitaker is, is a journalist, and he's just re you know reporting back what he found. So if you if you if you call a, a, a psychiatrist with some integrity and really ask him, him or her about this, he or she will say, you know, of course, that, that's nonsense. It doesn't work. But they can't restrain themselves <laughs> from the prescribing. They, they're addicted to the money that they make on it. And uh, they're not about to turn around to become homeopaths, most of them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The reason why I talk about this is because I'm a chronic pain patient. So I'm sorry, you're a what? I didn't catch that. I'm a chronic pain patient. Oh, yes. I know what's going on. I see, I see. it every time I, I go see. to the doctor. You know, every time I go to yeah. my pain clinic, I see yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I've always looked in it. Like, I was, I, was, I was looking at Kratom for a while there to try and get away from all that. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, the stuff they're prescribing, and I'll probably get taken off the air for this. You watch. I mean, there's side effects. I mean, right now, gabapentin is, you know, there's a lawyer looking into, you know, the side effects for gabapentin. Um, suboxone, people's teeth are falling out. I mean, all this stuff is going on, and people don't realize, you know, when they're when when they're seeing a doctor, they put all their trust into that medical doctor, and sometimes even the doctors don't realize what's going on until it's too late. Yeah, it's just so amazing to me the trend about advertising dire drugs directly to the public. Yeah. I, I I mean, when that first happened, it was people said, "Wait a minute, shouldn't my doctor be knowing about that? Why are you talking to me?" But now it's been normalized, and people say, "You know, okay, sure, my doctor is completely ignorant of this. I have to." bring this to his attention or her attention. I've got to sell this to the doctor so he can give it to me. It's, yeah. it's so bizarre that the way things become normalized that at one time uh, were so, so not, <laughs> so tremendously abnormal. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. Oh, I love the work you do. I, I think it's wonderful. I think it's a great alternative for people. Yeah. Um, I have a little bit of trouble with the word alternative. You know, the Johns Hopkins uh, University Medical School, which has been right one of the exclusive sources for histories of homeopathy, mm -hmm. uh, is really you know, uh, a bad actor as far as I'm concerned because they've been beating the drum that homeopathy was a sect, that it was a heresy, trying very hard to uh, minimize it, you know, guess why? Uh, who's funding them? And uh, it's not an alternative. It was, it was uh, always quite mainstream. It was not the majority, but it was uh, the, the, the mental hospitals, for example, were 25% of the mental hospitals. Why, how has it happened that that is not mentioned in the, in the, in the ex existing texts on history of asylums in this country or mental health care? Um, I think the truth needs to be told and stop, people have to stop using words like sect and heresy because mm -hmm. this idea contaminates the medical history departments all around the country and the history departments. I have done an informal survey of history departments to see you know, uh, where this is being taught. Am I the only person who knows about this? Mm -hmm. It would be like the only person knowing the, that the War of 1812 existed and trying to convince other people of that. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And one thing is, well, uh, the, the, the curriculums of, of, the, of, the, of the history departments are overrun now by completely other things. And not that they're bad to study gender and racism and, and colonialism, mm -hmm. but um, there's no room for something like this. So how is that possible? It matters. As I say, if, you, if people lose their history, lose awareness of what has happened, they lose choice and they wind up just telling war stories forever and, and wringing their hands. And uh, the problem needs some creative thinking and it needs to be come at it from different ways. So the, the drum that I'm beating is uh, let's get people uh, uh, who, who know something about homeopathy into history departments. So, so people who are willing to talk about history from from point of view of what actually happened and not a preferred reality manufactured by the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, come mm -hmm. on. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to thank you this hour blew by. Thank you so much for coming on. I really Charlotte, thank you very, very much for having me and hearing, hearing these opinions. Um, I hope people talk about them and uh, find that there's some, some merit in them and uh, find a way to improve the healthcare situation other than by telling war stories. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we'll try to get you back on a later date, too, so we can get some updates and stuff. On how you're doing. All right. Anyway, the book is Sane Asylums. It's put out by Simon and Schuster. The success of homeopathy before psychiatry lost its mind. And I've gotten, surprisingly, no pushback on that subtitle. How do you like that? There you go. All right. <laughs> well, like I said, uh, let's get together later on down the line and we'll talk more about this stuff. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Take care. You have a good one. Bye-bye, sir. Bye-bye. Okay, that was a very interesting show. I told you guys it was going to be pretty cool, pretty interesting, different from what I normally do. I want to thank him again for coming on. I really appreciate it. I will have his contact information for you at the very end here, along with the, he's written three books, including the one he, he was talking about tonight. But it's interesting. It's very interesting to me because I'm always looking for natural, uh, you know, extra stuff, you know, alternative stuff for what I'm going through as well. But uh, anyway, I want to thank him again. Tomorrow night, we're shifting gears again, back to paranormal. Dr. Brian Lath is going to be with us, and he's going to be talking about the haunted reality of the paranormal. So we're going to get into that. He's done studies on uh, paranormal and the, and, and the psychology that goes into it, and it's going to get really involved and all deep tomorrow. So he's going to be on with us at 6.30 p.m. tomorrow. Look at this. I got shorter. So that, I got shorter. I keep getting shorter. So he's going to be on with us at 6.30 p.m. Pacific tomorrow. All right. Again, I want to thank this gentleman for coming on tonight. 
and it was very informative. There's stuff I didn't even know, like about the differences in, in the asylums. I mean, that's crazy when they, they lock them up in a box. Oh my God. But uh, yeah, and I just want to make sure, you know, we're at the end of the show. I just want to make sure that, you know, if you choose to to go to a practitioner like him, be sure to check with your doctor. You know, even though your doctor may not be for it, you might have a doctor that's for it, like I did with my cardiologist. But just be sure, you know, you make sure that this stuff is okay. All right. I just want to make sure that's out in the open because I don't want to spread any misinformation or anything like that because that's not the goal of the show. Okay. Anyway, tomorrow again, uh, uh, Dr. Brian Lee is going to be with us to talk about the insides out. I'm going to say the insides out of the paranormal because that's essentially what it is. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're good with that. I'm happy with that. Again, if you're watching from Facebook and you liked what you heard, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. It's that little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner. And if you're watching from uh, Twitter, or Twitter, you know, just join us. Join us over at Twitter. We're over at Twitter, California. Remember, uh, Cal Haunts. Uh, YouTube, we're California Haunts paranormal uh let's see facebook california haunts instagram it's hard to remember all these things you actually have like a list on the wall instagram goes to cal tiktok or california haunts it's all lowercase check us out we're, we're everywhere we're all over the internet but i want to thank you all for coming tonight and uh, again i'm going to give you his information uh, and also you see that ticker at the bottom that's because california haunts does not take money to do any investigations or anything like that so we live off, our group apparently, our group, our, parent, our group operates off of donations. So if you can find it in your heart to help us out a little bit, you know, for internet costs and all that good stuff, I'd, it's very much appreciated because everything goes back in that keeping the show on the air, buying new equipment for the team, keeping everything up, batteries, whatever we need out in the field to help people. I'd really appreciate it. And it's at paypal.me at California Haunts or Venmo forward slash California Haunts. And I'm going to make the announcement again. I have a uh, psychic development class, too, that I, I, I put off because I ended up having some appointments for sponsors. I have one more appointment for sponsors this Saturday. And then after that, well, I'm free, so I will be able to get to that class for everybody that signed up. So don't worry about it. I'm on it. It's all good. All right. Okay. Anyway, I will see you guys tomorrow. Here's his contact information. And uh, hope you guys have a good diet. Website, vitalforcehealthcare.com. Sane Asylums is the one is the book he just brought up to us. The Toxic Relationship Cure is the next book. And Interpreting Chronic Illness is the third book. And of course, you can get those at Amazon.com. Okay, once again, I will see you guys tomorrow, and uh, hope you have a good night.